Suppose you were in prison. Something you said or did or simply were as a Christian broke a law or offended those in power. And now you are in a jail cell, situation uncertain, fate unknown. You do not have a Bible, and that is the last thing your captors will supply you with. What would you be able to recall from that great book? Oh, the outlines of the stories would be in your memory, but what could you recite by heart in order to meditate on it, be nourished by it, in that fearful solitude in which you would find yourself? The 23rd Psalm, perhaps. The prologue to John's Gospel, possibly. 1 Corinthians 13, maybe. But the one thing I am sure you will know by heart is the Lord's Prayer. I want us to ponder this treasure over the next four Sundays, for it is much more than a prayer much more than an outline for prayer, although it is both of these things. It is, I would contend, a framework for our faith, and we will need it whether we are alone in a jail cell or in the more ordinary circumstances of life. The familiar words in the traditional version are projected on the screen in the left-hand column. In the right-hand column is a contemporary version, which I prefer, and I will comment on the differences as we go along. But always remember that the Lord's Prayer has a context. Its context is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We might call that sermon the charter of the kingdom of God, in which Jesus tells us who the kingdom is for, who will bring the kingdom, and what life should be like for its citizens. In chapter 5, he teaches about the means of grace that enable us to grow into the purity of heart and peacemaking and the ability to withstand persecution for righteousness' sake, which will make us ambassadors of the kingdom. And those means of grace are three, almsgiving and prayer and fasting. In the passage on prayer, which you just heard as our gospel reading, Jesus urges privacy for prayer. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. He also urges brevity. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, where they think that they will be heard for their many words. Why brevity? Because your Father, that is God, knows what you need before you ask Him. Well, why pray at all then? This important question is answered in the parallel version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus gives the text of the prayer and then promises a good gift from God to those who pray. And that gift turns out to be the Holy Spirit. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
So prayer, Jesus is saying, is not fundamentally about getting things from God or arranging things with him or working out a bargain. Prayer is about putting yourself in a position to be oriented and transformed by God, to be changed by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the first sentence of the Lord's Prayer. It begins with two stunning words, which we too often skip over, swallow or mumble. Those words are our Father, or as they say around here, our Father. What a privilege to call the ruler of the universe the great I am, the ground of being, the unmoved mover, Father. A week ago was Father's Day, and some of us phoned our fathers, and some of us didn't. Some of us have warm and grateful associations with the word, and some of us have fearful or sad recollections. But speaking biblically, to say that God is your father is to say that he is your progenitor, the one from whom you come, your protector, and your provider. These are the great tasks of fatherhood. And to say that about God is to say that he is the one who created you, protects you, and provides for you. But how dare we say such a thing? What presumption? What arrogance to call God Father? We dare to say this because Jesus called God his Father. Indeed, he called him Abba which is a more intimate form of address, sort of like dad. And Jesus taught us as his followers to call God Father. Indeed, he went so far as to say, and do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father, and he is in heaven. And surely the resurrection and ascension confirmed for us that Jesus was entitled to call God Father and to teach us to do likewise. And so, friends, if God is Father to us, then who are we? Duh. We are his children, the children of God. So when Jesus tells us to pray our Father, he is telling us to claim, to remember, to hang on to our identity as God's beloved children. Would that recollection help you in a solitary jail cell? I think so. But notice that it's our Father, not my Father, just as it is give us this day our daily bread, not give me, and forgive us as we forgive. So even if our praying is done largely in secret and never to be done as a public display, although prayer in groups can be very helpful and supportive, we always, always pray as part of a community of believers worldwide, which is the church. Our Father, it is a dynamite addressed to God. And don't you forget it. Who art in heaven, or simply in heaven, in the contemporary translation, Perhaps this explains the mysterious phrase, pray to your Father who is in secret. God is present, but not fully present. 
implicit but not explicit, hidden from the eye of sinful man. He is not like an earthly father, visible, tangible, audible. Why? Because he is in heaven. And what is heaven? Not some uppermost stratosphere in remote space, but another realm altogether, where what we hope for and dream about and work for with such mixed results on earth is fully established. In the vision of John in Revelation chapter 21, heard as our second reading, heaven is where the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Our Father in heaven, an intimate yet remote, revealed and yet secret, present and yet to come. He is the one to whom all our prayers must be addressed as the family of God, the community of the children of God. Hallowed be thy, or hallowed be your name. This is an awkward, arcane phrase, which needs unpacking if we are to be able to understand it. The English Standard Version, which is the translation of the Bible we use here at the Church of the Cross, suggests in a footnote that it means, let your name be kept holy, or let your name be treated with reverence. Name in biblical usage, as in calling on the name of God, is much more than just a label or a moniker. Calling on the name of God invokes his presence, his power, his authority. This is why in Psalm 113, we not only praise the Lord, but we praise the name of the Lord, because we know his name. And where his name is present, he is present in his power and with his authority, and we can call on him for help. But when we ignore him, disobey and distrust him, we disparage his name. Sometimes we use it as a swear word, a little conversational flavoring. Oh God, it's hot, we say. That's not a prayer to God. It is using his name to give a little emphasis to our negative emotions. But when we hallow his name, we listen to him. We seek to obey him. We trust him in difficult and demanding situations. We hallow his name by creating the room in our lives and in our world for him to act without the interference of our obstruction and disobedience. This was Isaiah's experience in his vision of the Lord in the temple, high and lifted up. Isaiah's resulting unworthiness, his redemption, his commissioning, all prefigure our experience of the holy God when we hallow his name, keep it holy, treat it with reverence. Notice that the form of the phrase, hallowed be thy name or hallowed be your name, is a general petition not limited to Jesus' followers. It's not, may I hallow your name, or even may we hallow your name. 
the verb form is the passive tense with an unspecified subject. Hallowed be thy name implies anyone, the whole world. Thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come. When God's name is hallowed, as our Father in heaven, things begin to happen. It's as if a chain reaction occurs. As his name is hallowed, his kingdom comes into the hearts and lives of the hallowers. His reign is established in reconciled human hearts, and he is enthroned as who he truly is, our sovereign. Thy or your will be done. This coming kingdom is the fulfillment of his will. Nothing else will do. Thy will be done. He does not wish to be a consultant. He does not wish to be the God of the deists to set things in motion and see where they go. He wills to reign. We are his children. He is our father. So we are the children of the king, waiting and longing and working for the coming of the kingdom. On earth, as it is in heaven, or on earth as in heaven. Only the coming kingdom will finally reunite heaven and earth, ending the great divide, restoring and renewing all things to God's original intention. So this first sentence of the Lord's Prayer tells us who God is, our Father in heaven, and who we are, children of the coming King. It anchors us in and recalls us to that identity. Whatever our circumstances, desperate or diurnal, may we never say this prayer without a surge of gratitude and encouragement. What a privilege. What a destiny. Amen.